It's December 9th, 2020. This is a new uh, podcast or uh, audio recording, and really it's my business journal. So I found a need to just be able to capture all the inspiration that I get from, from the daily newspaper and all the reading I do. So here it is. Story one is about the uh, Swiss cheese defense for the pandemic. And really you could use this Swiss cheese defense for a number of different things, you know, creative process and certainly productivity or like having a plan to work on your life purpose and your goals. And the idea is that it's basically like a stack of slices of Swiss cheese. And for the example, in the pandemic, you know, each cheese slice would be like, you know, uh, wearing masks or social distancing or a vaccine. Uh, So no one thing is going to do the job, but at this cumulative effect of a lot of different defenses will be quite effective and there has been other examples in the in the past uh, week or so that I've seen in the news that I I just think this is a nice idea so today's article talks a lot about you know this multiple layers of protection And when you add up all these slices of cheese, you really kind of have an impenetrable barrier. This Swiss cheese concept originated with James T. Reason, who was a cognitive psychologist. He wrote a book called Human Error. And it's a lot about all of the different disasters, you know, like the Challenger, Shuttle Explosion, Chernobyl, He called it the Swiss cheese model of accidents. And all of the holes in the the cheese represented all of the errors that accumulated to lead to these catastrophes. The virologist Ian M. McKay from Australia, he posted some kind of an infographic I'll have to look up uh, called the Swiss cheese respiratory pandemic defense. On Twitter and it got a lot of engagement. So this multi-layered approach to reducing risk is used in a lot of different industries, especially those that if you screw up people can die. Story 2 is called the honeypot and this is where cybersecurity companies and, and organizations are using what they call a honeypot which really kind of draws in hackers So when someone comes along and they want to invade someone's website or network, they set up these areas where it looks like the bad guy's getting the good stuff, and they really are luring them in to track them and watch what they're doing and then kick them out. This is called deception technology, and it's gaining a lot of momentum as cyber attacks become more sophisticated. For some reason, I like the idea of this honeypot where you're luring someone because, you know, in my business of of coaching, the All the Hats We Wear coaching program and company, you know, I want people to be motivated by what they're seeking, their vision, some positive outlook for them. So how can I set up honeypots in terms of self-development for people? Ooh, and here's an article called Reignite the Spark Even Amid the Pandemic. 
I love the story of a guy uh, in that in that article, a writer from South Southern California. He keeps a tambourine in his nightstand, and he pulls it out to celebrate especially great moments. He says he must sound like the music man for, from his neighbor's perspective. <laughs> I love that a tambourine in the in the drawer. One advisor said that mystery breeds desire. And that you have to create some breathing room in your relationship. And this reminds me of uh, life coaching. Because uh, one of the big focuses on life coaching is to help the client create space for trying on that new part of their personality or whatever they're trying to work towards, their vision. You have to make space for that because it's new and it's different. And really, you're most likely not going to get that in your typical life, in your direct people that you see all the time. They want you to stay who you are for their needs. But with a coach, they give you that space to try on what could it be like if you were different, if you were more. And I love that. The next story, uh, story number four, is helping your teenagers stay focused during the pandemic. There's a book I need to check out called Raising Cain, Protecting the Emotional Life of Boys by Michael Thompson, who's a child psychologist. That sounds like a great resource for me since I have twin boys. <clears throat> Going to the uh, father role, as I like to uh, swift between, switch between all my different roles while I'm reading the paper. What can help me and how can I be helpful to the world? They also say in this article that motivation is often tied to success. That's a great point. In the book Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us by Daniel Pink. I need to get that book. I keep hearing about it. And he wrote about um, the autonomy over how and when we work as being one of the greatest motivating forces for children and adults. And that a big part of motivation comes from a sense of achievement. So they really, um, it's a cycle where it generates, one generates the other. This says Dr. Narad suggests writing down a list of tasks that can be completed for the kids to cross off. Make another list for long-term projects and break those into smaller tasks. Kind of general advice. That way your kid isn't scrambling to try to do a big project. And this is all covered in my book, All the Hats We Wear. A whole system for managing large projects with seven stages. And a whole process about how to plan your day and how to prioritize. And about daily habits and how that really is the daily thing that you do for your goals. So check out the book. Story number five is about a woman, Shantaria McGilbra, who is a San Francisco-based biotech consultant. And she has a Ferrari. And this was a whole life-changing experience for her. At first, in 2015, she said she was in the shower and the word Ferrari came to her. And she was like, oh, that's weird. And then um, after a week... The, uh, she went to the dealer 
in Mill, in Mill Valley, California. And then she, once she took a test ride, she was in love with the, having a Ferrari. And she said it's not like ordering another car. Like you have to go back and forth. A couple of weeks she did um, designing her own Ferrari, what she wanted. And she wanted, uh, she ended up with titanium paint, so like a, a steel gray, a chocolate-colored suede interior, which sounds awesome, and a black dashboard. So that's pretty cool. And uh, obviously a wealthy lady. She does rallies, all-female Ferrari rallies, to help her foundation. And she founded her foundation called Prancing Ponies, which is named after the Ferrari logo of ponies. And it helps young women grow in leadership. Awesome idea. So, she even named her car Coco. And she says, I can't believe how much we've accomplished in five years. Her and her car, Coco. I need to check out her foundation. Love that. Story six is a book recommendation that I need to check out. It's, the book is called Friends and Enemies by Barbara Emil. And I guess, I mean, it's pretty um, gossipy and all that, but it sounds interesting. She was very wealthy or had wealthy husbands, three husbands, and, you know, a lot about having a blacklist of well-connected partiers. So it sounds like a pretty interesting read. Story number eight is the obituary of Chuck Yeager, 97-year-old guy. He was the pilot who broke the sound barrier. Pretty amazing guy. That happened on October 14th, 1947, uh, over the Mojave Desert. A 14-minute sprint in his plane that was considered the most important airplane flight since Orville Wright swept over the sands of Kitty Hawk for 40 yards on December 17th, 1903. Actually, this whole flight was early in the dark days of the Cold War, and it had to be filed away as top secret. So he accomplished this amazing feat, and no one could even know about it. That he did get some uh, few slaps on the back and around of martinis from uh, his higher ups at the Happy Bottom Riding Club near Morocco Air Force Air Air Base. <laughs> I mean, he was just an awesome fighter pilot. One day he shot down. Five planes, and that's the needed designation to be called an ace. Then a month later, he downed four more in one day. Incredible. And they said that Jaeger flew an airplane as if it was welded to him, as if he was an integral part of it. And his feel for the, the airplane, whatever type of airplane it was, was just instinctive, intuitive, like he would, he had flown it for a hundred hours or more. He just had this natural sense with mechanics. When he did his famous flight to uh, break the sound barrier, all he had for protection was a leather football helmet that he adapted for the purpose with his pen knife. <laughs> I mean, this guy is the real deal. And he named his plane that he did that Glamorous Glennis after his wife. 
as he had done with his combat fighters. He said the, uh, the impact of going into his uh, breaking the sound barrier, it's like a sky rocket. You're not flying, you're holding on to the tiger's tail. Inspirational guy. Story 9 is just three recipes that I uh, cut out to try out. Taiwanese beef noodle soup, pure potato latkes, which is potato pancakes, I guess, and spice-rubbed braised brisket. Oh, and caramelized sheet pan French toast. The tenth story is about the new book by uh, President Obama called A Promised Land. And this really focuses on his writing skill and uh, I found a lot of really interesting things in this article about him as a writer in that his reading growing up really form formulated how he's a writer and storyteller, a master storyteller. And it says that this Promised Land memoir is really unlike any other presidential autobiography from the past. It's very introspective. It's a self-portrait. And he has awesome storytelling powers. He says that, quote, storytelling and literature are more important than ever because we need to explain to each other who we are and where we're going. Love that. Uh, President Obama points out that um, whether it's Whitman or Emerson or Ellison or Kerouac, there's a sense of self-invention and embrace of contradiction. And I like that idea. Embracing contradiction. He was a voracious reader, but also he inhaled and synthesized the ideas he found in those books. He assimilated ones that resonated with his personal experiences and values. So key. He described Vladimir Putin, the then Russian Prime Minister, as a leader whose voice evinced a, quote, practiced disinterest. And that he was accustomed to, he, he indicated that he, uh, quote, someone accustomed to being surrounded by subordinates and supplicants. Although when it came to photo ops, Putin seemed to be fastidious about how his photos were seen, almost like the fastidious of a teenager on Instagram. <laughs> Obama says that he really focused on James Baldwin and that he probably was had the biggest impact on creating his own voice. But this idea of the searing honesty and generosity of spirit and that ironic sense of being able to look at things and have compassion. He even learned from V.S. Naipaul, N-A-I-P-A-U-L. Though he didn't agree with his beliefs, he loved the way that Naipaul constructed arguments. And, quote, with a few strokes, he could paint a portrait of someone and take an individual story or mishap or event and connect it to larger themes and larger historical currents. 
I definitely think that Obama does that. The author of Lincoln, the biography of a writer, Fred Kaplan, drew parallels to Abraham Lincoln and Obama because they both had a mastery of language and, quote, a first-class temperament, end quote, for a president. To be able to be stoic and flexible and willing to listen to a lot of different viewpoints. And he says that both presidents and authors were trained lawyers, but they had poetic sensibilities. They forged their identities in their careers through the, quote, crucible of language. Love that, the importance of language. How powerful it is if you have mastery of it. It says Obama didn't have time to keep a regular journal, but he would jot down accounts of important moments as they happened. When he does his first draft, he uses legal pads, yellow legal pads, longhand, and the act of typing it onto the computer really kind of becomes his first edit. He's very particular about what pens he likes. This is cool. He always uses a black Uniball Vision Elite Rollerball with a micro point and adds that he tends to do his best writing between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Because, quote, I found that the world narrows and that is good for my imagination. It's almost as if there is a darkness all around and there's a metaphorical beam of light down on the desk onto the page. Other books that he uh, said were important to him, The Great Gatsby, Whitman's Poetry, Ellison's Invisible Man, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, Morrison's Song of Solomon, just about anything by Hemingway and Faulkner and Philip Roth. Because those books, quote, had a sense of the tension around ethnic groups trying to assimilate. What does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be on the outside looking in? <clears throat> and for nonfiction, he liked... Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X, Thoreau's Walden, Emerson's Self-Reliance, Lincoln's Second Inaugural Address, Dr. King's Letter from Birmingham Jail. A lot of good stuff in that article. That's it for today. Bye-bye.